Uh, does our behaviour matter or not? Well, on the one hand, we might say no. God offers us unconditional forgiveness, whatever sins you've committed. Uh, and we welcome every repentant sinner, no matter what you've committed, what, it, what sins you've committed. So, in, in one sense, behaviour doesn't matter. Prior behaviour doesn't matter. But on the other hand, we shouldn't confuse that with what God expects of his children. He's a holy God, he commands us to be holy as well. So on the other hand, of course behaviour matters. Uh, We expect the right behaviour from all sorts of people in society and uh, we've seen quite a bit of it in the news recently. We expect it of our financial advisors. We expect it from politicians and from actors and from sportsmen and we will rightly call them to account when their behaviour is not right. And yet sometimes we expect a lower standard from Christians. Uh, We excuse sin by saying things like, well, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Or we say, all of us are a work in progress. Or, surely sin doesn't matter too much, you just confess it and move on. This is the issue Paul's facing in Corinth, the church who are overlooking and minimising unrepentant sin. And in these two chapters, Paul gives us seven answers to the question, why does my behaviour as a Christian matter? Why is it important? And time and again, it's stuff the Corinthians should know. I don't know whether you noticed, six times in those 30 verses, Paul said, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? The Corinthians have been Christians long enough to know how they should live, and yet they don't. Or or they do know it, but they're choosing to ignore it. And so again and again, Paul has to point out what should be obvious, don't you know? Uh, The first situation involves serious sexual immorality. Start of the chapter, a man is living with his father's wife, his stepmom. It's against Jewish law, it's against Greek, it's against Roman law. And to really say something about how bad it was, it was against, it was frowned on by the Corinthian pagan society. So it must be really bad. But what really astounds Paul isn't the man's behaviour, it's the church's. Uh, We read that the church is proud when they really should have been filled with grief at what this man was doing. There in verse 2. Now, how could they possibly be proud when this sort of sin was among them? Well, what it might mean is that He was an important man and they were willing to overlook what he was doing because he was a member of their church and, well, it didn't really matter too much. It was more important that he was here. So it could mean that. Uh, Or it could mean, even worse, they were actually proud of this sin. Uh, They'd actually misunderstood the nature of the Gospel. They'd misunderstood grace and they twisted it until it became, we're saved by grace so it doesn't matter what we do. God will still forgive us. Isn't it wonderful how low we can go and God will still forgive us? Once you start believing that, it's only a short jump to saying God is all about love and he's not concerned with judgement at all. People can just stay the way they like. It's an argument that we've heard from some churches during the same-sex marriage debate in the last couple of years and we're hearing it again during the gender diversity debate, that Christians can basically live any way they like, it doesn't matter. Uh, More than just being willing to overlook sin, 
from Christians. Uh, they're accepting it. In fact, they pride themselves on how inclusive and tolerant they are and they call it Christian love. But Paul's response is there in verse 6. He says, it's his first, don't you know, your boasting is not good, don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? They should know, but they don't. They think sin is not important, basically doesn't matter, you can call yourself a Christian and live any way you like, but the reality is it does matter because it only takes a small amount to infect the whole church. That's the point of the illustration with the yeast. Uh, Yeast and dough, you only need a couple of teaspoons of yeast and it can transform a whole bowl of dough into something completely different. But Paul's thinking about more than just the kitchen. Uh, The idea of yeast represents sin uh, in the Old Testament and we have to go all the way back to the Passover. The Jewish people left Egypt in a hurry and they didn't have time to bake bread and so they ended up baking unleavened or flatbread. And so when Moses brought the people out into the desert, he commanded them that they were going to remember that rescue, the Passover every year, by baking unleavened bread. And as a symbol of the yeast that they left behind in Egypt, wherever they were living, they would search out and remove every part of yeast in their whole house before Passover. And yeast came to represent the polluting influence of the world. And so that's what the Corinthian Christians should be doing as well. Paul says in verse 7, get rid of the old yeast. Get rid of sin from from the midst of you because it only takes a small amount to infect everything. And From the start of the chapter we can see he's talking about the sinful man and he describes the process from verse 2. Put him out of the fellowship. Now that sounds harsh and judgmental but as we bring other parts of uh, the Bible to bear, including the teaching of Jesus, we see that that's to be the last step. Uh, He's been warned by one person. He's been warned by multiple people. He's been warned by the leadership of the church. But here is the last step. He won't repent and so he's to be removed from membership. And so Paul says, verse 4, do it at a public meeting. By the authority of the Lord Jesus, when I'm with you in spirit, hand him over to Satan. Now that sounds pretty drastic, but what it means is you remove him from membership. Uh, You make him part of the world rather than a member of church. Uh, But notice what the purpose is. Uh, It's there for the benefit of the sinner. Verse 5, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. A discipline and correction to the sinner. The sinful nature might be destroyed. It's literally so that the body or the flesh might be destroyed. The idea is life outside the church is uncomfortable. There are consequences. It's not nice. There's loneliness and separation from friendship and support structures. But that's, it's not just about punishment, it's about uh, restoration and correction. Uh, that's the second benefit. Uh, it's so that his soul might be saved, uh, that he's restored, that he recognises his mistake and repents. But more than just the individual, uh, the whole point of this, or, or, or another point of this, is that it's also for the sake of the church. That's the idea of a little yeast works through the whole lump. Uh, The man's sin affects people. And that's why the discipline is to be public. 
It's not to be something that happens behind closed doors. Uh, The sin has been public. People are talking about it. It's made its way all the way to where Paul is writing. Uh, And so the name of Jesus is being dragged down. Uh, And so because it's a public sin, the discipline needs to be public as well. And so when nothing is done, all sorts of messages are sent about how the leadership must think it's all right for this sort of behaviour and, well, if it's all right for him, then does that mean it's all right for me? And so by public discipline, uh, it's, uh, the influence is stopped and others are warned and protected as well. So why does Christian behaviour matter? First reason, it only takes a little yeast to infect the whole batch. Second reason, uh, verse 7, Christ your Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Uh, Look at verse 7, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. What's going on there? There's yeast, there's lamb. Uh, Once again this verse is uh, thinking back to Exodus. Jesus the Passover lamb. Uh, He's the one who the sacrificed lamb with blood spread on the doorpost is symbolising and uh, pointing towards. Just as the lamb's blood protected from God's wrath, so Jesus' blood protects uh, from God's wrath as well. He is the ultimate, the final Passover lamb. And so because he has died, because he has protected us from God's wrath, Paul's argument in verse 7 is, Get rid of the old yeast. Get rid of the sin so that you you might be as you are. What's he mean by that? I think this is his point. Jesus has actually made you clean. He's got rid of the sin and the guilt, so therefore get rid of the sin in your life. Live the way you actually are. Start, uh, you're part of the team, so start wearing the uniform. Put on the new nature uh, because you are already right with God. Verse 8, he explains what that looks like practically. Once again, using this language of the Passover festival. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. He's saying... Don't worry about hunting out literal yeast from your house. Uh, That's just symbolic. Get rid of sin uh, in your whole life. Don't worry about yeast. Hunt out instead malice and wickedness. And then bake up a fresh uh, unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Uh, That's the sort of behaviour you need to be building into your life. So the second reason, why do, does behaviour matter? Because Jesus has died for you. He's made you holy. So begin to live out that holiness practically. Third reason, verse 10, why does your behaviour matter? Because you live by a different standard. Now, the context is that Paul has written a previous letter and in that previous letter he said, don't associate with sexually immoral people. That's what verse 9 tells us. Now the Corinthians had received that and they thought that meant we shouldn't relate to anybody in the world. We should cut ourselves off from wicked people. We should just form like a little monastery. But Paul said, no, that's not what I meant. 
uh, I meant have nothing to do with someone who says he's a Christian and lives uh, a sexually immoral life. That's what he's been describing at the start of the chapter and he says, cut yourself off from them. Treat them as if they're not Christian. Don't let people think uh, that this sort of behaviour is what a Christian life looks like. He adds a few more sins in verse 11 as well. Don't just cut off the sexually immoral person but the greedy, the idolater, the slanderer, drunkard, swindler or fraud. Now he's not thinking about Christians who commit one-off sins like that because uh, if you include that whole list all of us would have fallen in at least one of those areas. Uh, What he's thinking about is a continual habitual uh, pattern of those sorts of sins. The church has corrected and rebuked but the the person who claims to be a Christian is, is still continuing that sort of lifestyle. They're not acting like Christians and so Paul says Treat them like non-Christians. That's sort of the context of what he's saying. But the point I want to make is a slightly different one. Have a look at what Paul says in verse 10. He's correcting the misunderstanding. He said, when I said have nothing to do with the sexually immoral, I didn't mean the people out there in the world. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. Now that says something interesting, doesn't it? It says, yes, be holy but you don't cut yourself off from the world in that pursuit to be holy. Our friends have got all sorts of vices. They live all sorts of lifestyles. But Paul says, don't cut yourself off from them. You're to remain friends with them. Paul himself said, I'm all things to all men. Our job is not to judge their lifestyle. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, our job is not to be telling you how you should be living your life. Our job is to be pointing you to Jesus. That's what's most important. That's what we should be doing with our friends. We should be working with them, playing sport with them, having dinner with them, going on holidays with them, but not judge them and don't be like them. We've got to walk that balancing, uh, we've got to walk that tightrope. Being holy, says Paul, is not about cutting yourself off from the world. Jesus said we're to be salt and light. Salt and light need to mix in to make a difference. Salt can't do its thing when it's stuck in the salt shaker. Light can't do anything to darkness if it's hidden under a basket. Our job is to focus on our behaviour. Our job is not to enforce our standards on the world. Do you see what he says in verse 12? What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Now perhaps you've experienced this with your non-Christian friends. Nothing turns off non-Christians more than when Christians expect them to keep standards uh, that these our friends never actually agreed to, which they don't live by, and probably which half the Christians don't keep either. Our job is to be encouraging people to get right with God and then the behaviour will look after itself. Well, that's... Uh, chapter 5. As we move into chapter 6 we can see another reason why our behaviour as Christians matters. Uh, Because you have a a higher calling. Because you have a higher calling. Uh, The context is these fights and quarrels in the Corinthian church we've seen right from the beginning. Uh, But here we find out that they're actually taking each other to court. 
Now, admittedly, uh, uh, the courts were like a national sport in the city of Corinth. That's what people used to do for entertainment. There was no Netflix, so they'd go and hang out in the courts. Uh, especially the rich, they used to take people to court for just about anything. And that's what it was becoming like in the church. Trivial cases, Paul says in verse 2. It's like one guy bumps into another uh, car in the church car park and the owner says, you're going to hear from my lawyers and off they run to the courthouse. Now now combine that with what we read in chapter 5 and you realise how uh, wrong-headed the Corinthians are being. Chapter 5, they overlook serious sin that they should be taking further And here in chapter 6, they're taking each other to court over trivial things, uh, things they should be overlooking. They're they're making molehills out of mountains and mountains out of molehills. But instead, Paul asks another of his don't you know questions. Verse 2, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? Now, I'll be honest, we don't exactly know what he's thinking about here. We thought Jesus was going to judge the world and that's certainly true. That's what the rest of the Bible talks about. But the idea is that God's children will have a great responsibility come judgement day. They will be in a position of making decisions. Rather than being in the the dock as the accused, in some sort of way they're going to be on the other side. Uh, They'll be making judgements even about angels. Perhaps... Uh, It'll be like being part of a jury where Jesus is the judge and his people are are the jury. Or maybe this sort of judging is actually an ongoing sort of administration role in the new heavens and the new earth. We we don't really know, but Paul's point is uh, you've got a higher calling. You're you're going to be making judgments about people uh, come judgment day. And Paul's point is, if that's your future, why is it you can't find anyone who can make wise judgments about trivial cases now? Isn't there someone wise enough to act as a judge? It's kind of ironic since that's what they prided themselves on, being wise. It should be easy to deal with minor disputes, disputes to do with justice and righteousness, things to do with mercy and forgiveness, If they're Christian, who better to decide those things than people who know the God of justice and righteousness, uh, to people who have been shown mercy and forgiveness? But instead Paul shakes his head and he says, you're handing the job over to unbelievers. That just makes the whole thing worse. So why does their behaviour as Christians matter? Because they they have a higher calling. They need to start living up to the calling that they have. Verse 9, Paul's next reason is there. Uh, It's another don't you know. Don't you know that the wicked won't inherit the kingdom of God? It's a pretty simple one, isn't it? Why does your behaviour matter? Because uh, you may miss out on your inheritance. Persistent, unrepentant wickedness shows that you don't have saving faith. You can't claim Jesus as your saviour but not live with him as your Lord. He needs to be saviour and Lord. It's a package deal. You can't split them up. Jesus is the package deal king. Don't be tricked, Paul says, verse 9, sin actually matters. 
Don't let someone tell you otherwise. Sexually immoral people will miss out. You can't just do those things, continue to do them and expect God to forgive you. But it's not just the sexually immoral. Verse 10, there's a list. Thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. It's pretty similar similar to the list back in chapter 5 of people who call themselves Christians. And Paul says that sort of persistent behaviour won't inherit God's kingdom. That's a pretty good reason, isn't it, why behaviour matters. As we move into the last part of chapter 6, we come to another good reason, verse 15. Why does behaviour matter? Why does your behaviour matter? Because your body doesn't belong to you. It's another don't you know. In fact, from verse 15, there's three within four verses and they're all making the same point. The Corinthians seem to think that anything goes as far as sexual behaviour. Uh, Verse 12 seems to be Paul quoting back to them some of their own slogans. Everything's permissible for me, he says, or or he's heard them say. Or verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, sexual desire is just an appetite, just satisfied. It's as simple as that. But Paul wants to say, no, those things are not true. The body may be made for food, but it's not made for sexual immorality. Your body is made for the Lord. He bought your body. He has a claim on it. One day he'll raise that body from the dead. Verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? It's not just you, your personhood who's been bought for a price. Your bodies have been bought for a price. Your bodies are joined to Jesus' body. He puts it another way in verse 19. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And then again, because that's true, he concludes, you are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honour God with your body. Why does behaviour matter? Because your bodies are valuable, they're precious, they're holy, they belong to Jesus, they're connected to Jesus. So use them honourably. Now we've rushed through that, perhaps you've got lots of questions, Um, might be a good time to ask each other some questions, ask me some questions afterwards, Uh, but we'll leave it there for today. But I want to finish on a positive note, this has all been fairly heavy, I can feel like you're sort of sinking down with the the weight of all this um, on your shoulders Um, and perhaps this talk about sexual sin and guilt has, has maybe left you feeling a little flat. Uh, perhaps guilty or damaged. Maybe there's stuff in your past that you you don't really want to think about Uh, because the reality is sexual sin can scar the way no other sin can. Uh, That's the point of verses 16 to 18. Uh, Sex connects two people uh, and affects people profoundly. Uh, Profoundly good in the right context and profoundly bad in the wrong context. So it's perhaps more than likely that uh, for one or two or perhaps more there's stuff in your past that you don't really want to think about, you're ashamed of, you've never really shared with anyone. Uh, If we've talked about some of that stuff and it's brought some stuff up you want to talk about, Peter or I would be happy to talk to you about it. But there's one thing I do want to do uh, and finish and that's finish on something slightly less down 
and uh, I want to point you to verse 11, sort of halfway through chapter 6. Verse 11, it's my favourite Bible verse this week. It'll be a different one next week. Uh, But here's a a bright light, I think, in in the midst of a dark couple of chapters. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you're a Christian, uh, that long list of sins used to describe you, but not anymore. If you're a Christian, Jesus has washed you clean. He's forgotten it. You were sanctified, you were set aside as holy. You were justified, you were declared innocent. How did that happen? In the name of Jesus, by his authority. How did it happen? By God's Spirit. God washed you clean. God has done a work in you. He's still at work in you. Sure, you're not where you want to be, you're not where you should be, but you're also not what you used to be. Perhaps you're not a Christian and perhaps you look at that list in verse 10 and and you think, you know, that's a little bit like looking in the mirror. That sort of describes my life and I, I don't particularly like it. If that's you, then maybe verse 11 is a promise to you. It's an invitation. It describes Christians now, but it's an offer of what could be your future as well. God is offering to deal with the rubbish and the sin and the guilt in your life, to wash you clean and forgive you and to begin to work on some of those, the healing of some of those scars. These couple of chapters have focused a lot on our behaviour and that's important but in the end I guess the key point is about what God has done, that he's washed us and I guess that's the best reason of all why your behaviour matters because God has washed us clean. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you for uh, these verses. Uh, We thank you for the reminder of the seriousness of sin and how you uh, demand a high standard from us but also how you have paid the ultimate price to clean us and to give us your spirit to empower and enable and change our hearts so that we can actually begin to resemble the Lord Jesus. We pray that uh, you will help us. I think in particular of any here tonight who... Uh, have been scarred by some of this type of sin. Uh, We pray that you will help them to trust you, uh, to know the forgiveness that you are offering and to begin to move from the darkness and the guilt into light and freedom. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.